God, we thank you for the gospel of Mark and how it reveals your son Jesus to us and shows that he has power over all things, power to heal and power to cast out demons, power to create, power to calm storms, um, and ultimately power to conquer sin and death and power to save and redeem. And we praise you for that. And I pray that as we look at Mark's gospel today, that we would be encouraged by what we see and that you would edify us through your word and through the discussion. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are going to start in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Mark 7, verse 24. Hi everybody, welcome. Just wherever you sit, please don't sit at a table with little papers. So if you need to move desks, like if you're going to sit over here, we can turn the desks around but or slide them in different places. But uh, the teacher has left some stuff out and we have to work around it. I don't know how these kids do that, right? When the desks are side by side like that, you can't get in them. They're agile. <laughs> All right, Mark chapter 7, verse uh, 24. It says, And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Uh, before I forget... We will meet for Adult Sunday School next Sunday, but then the two Sundays after that, we will not meet. Um, my phone is being used to record, but I think it's like the 13th and the 20th, something like that. There is no Adult Sunday School, okay? So I'll send out an email, but two weeks, for, next week we meet, in two weeks, we don't meet for two weeks. Okay, Tyre and Sidon, does anybody know where Tyre and Sidon are? They're on the east coast of the Mediterranean, just north of Israel. So this is like the northwest area of Israel. It's actually just outside of Israel. So these would be Gentile lands. If your Bible has a map in the back, you can find these cities. They're going to be kind of like in the top left corner. Uh, yeah, northwest of the Sea of Galilee. The point is... Uh, and the, this, this area was called Syria. I mean, today it's still Syria. Syria or Phoenicia. So that's where you get Syro-Phoenician woman. And these are not Jewish peoples for the most part. I mean, there were certainly some Jews living here. But for the most part, these were Gentile folks. And what we find is that the fame of the Jewish Messiah has spread even to this region. Okay, so we've got kids in the room. Somebody tell me who's like a popular person these days. Like, you follow people on Instagram. Who do you follow? 
Steph Curry. <laughs> um, who else is cool? Uh, LeBron James. Musical people? Come on. You gotta have some cool music person that you listen to, no? Well, if you went to like, um, you know, Africa or Australia, do you think they would know the name of LeBron James? I think they would. I think they would. The point is, the name of Jesus, even without social media, has spread and gone even to these areas that are not areas uh, that are Jewish. Now, why? Why has his fame spread like this? What has Jesus been doing that would make him popular like this? Miracles. Yeah, miracles. Incredible things. Like, mind-blowing things, right? Like, feeding more than probably 10,000 people. Um, like, healing people that appeared dead. I mean, I think the woman, the little girl probably was dead. Um, so he's been doing some incredible things. His fame has spread beyond even the boundaries of his own people, the Jews. And what's important to understand about a scene like this is it is foreshadowing or hinting at, it's preparing us for this idea that the messianic movement, so messianic meaning Messiah, the saving work of Jesus, is God's intention for more than just the Jewish people. Okay, the messianic movement of Jesus was intended to go beyond the Gentiles, I'm sorry, the Jews, to the Gentiles. So Isaiah 49.6, God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this is a prophetic, I mean, this is a prophecy from the Old Testament about what this Messiah is going to do. And he's going to be a light for the nations that God's salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Okay, so Jesus is a savior for all people. And then John declares all of these things fulfilled in Christ in his gospel in John chapter 1. It says, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now remember what Isaiah said, I will make you as a light for the nations. Verse 10 of John chapter 1, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So who, who are his own? Referring to Jesus, who did he come to? Yeah, the Jews, right? Because he was a Jew. But they didn't receive him. But then John writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? And so what does this woman say? She comes to Jesus asking for help, and he says to her in verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she shows this incredible faith, and she responds and says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Man, she has no idea that actually God's intention is that even her, by faith, could enter, even she by faith, sorry, could enter the kingdom of God and become a child of God through the work of Christ. It's kind of beautiful, but she shows some really incredible faith here. Um, verse 24, 
I find a little, we, we just read John chapter one and I find some irony in verse 24 in light of that. Um, because what did John chapter one say that Jesus was? He is the, anybody remember? True light. First John, I'm sorry, John chapter one, verse nine says that Jesus is the true light. And verse 24 here in Mark chapter 7 says, And Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know. What does it say? Yet he could not be hidden. Right? Because you can't hide the light. I mean, think about the sun burning bright in the sky. Is it easy or hard to get away from it? If you're outside, you can't escape it. Right? And that's like Jesus. I mean, you cannot hide the beauty of his light. And yet, sadly, most people don't perceive who Jesus is. They think he's just a dude who can, you know, pull bread out of a hat and tell sick girls to get up and heal blind people. He's like a miracle worker, but they don't perceive him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, And that's sad because they came and they got from him healing, like being able to see or hear Uh, or eat, but they didn't get what Jesus truly came to offer, which was eternal life, healing for your soul, forgiveness from sins, victory over evil and sin and Satan and death. So they, um, I don't know, man, maybe they're like a person who goes to a car dealership and uh, has an opportunity to take home a car for free, but instead leaves with a picture of a car. Right? I mean, they were standing there with the opportunity to receive life from God, and many of these people didn't get it, unfortunately. So I heard an outrageous claim recently by somebody who supposedly is a pastor, quote unquote, that when Jesus says to this woman uh, in verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That Jesus was displaying racism. That Jesus was a racist and he was like in the process of growing and getting better. Is that true? How would you argue against that? I mean, right now our culture is so stupid. We're so obsessed with... With, it's been so just crammed on our throat that people are prone to see racism everywhere, even where it doesn't exist. I don't understand how that's racist. Because he insults her. She's not a Jew, and so he insults her by calling her a dog. He's ethnically equating her with dogs. How would you counter that argument? How is it not a, an insult? Anybody want to take a crack at it? All right, well, then I've got three answers for you, okay? The first one is, Jesus is teaching how Jesus almost always teaches. How does Jesus like to teach? Yeah, parables and illustrations and imagery and pictures, right? And this creates a pretty, a pretty um, clear piece of imagery in your mind, doesn't it? I mean, a loving father, that's God, has his particular children, that's Israel, and he promised to do good to them. And so they have the seat of honor at the table. 
And God has other creatures, if you will, in his house that he cares about. That would be like the Gentiles, maybe, being like a dog. And, and yet, I mean, I've got a dog. I care about my dog. I'm not, I don't kick my dog. I don't beat my dog. I don't mistreat my dog. But my dog also does not get to sit at the table with my children, right? And so Jesus is using this illustration to say, like, God the Father sent me to do the messianic work of the Jewish people, okay? Um, so that's the second part. The first part is this is an illustration. We know that Jesus has compassion on all people because he shows it in all different kinds of crowds of people. But he's teaching through a parable. Second, that parable, what does it tell us? It tells us that his mission is to fulfill the, the role of the Messiah of the Jews. And this is a long-expected prophetic promise that these people had been waiting for, for well, since Abraham. Um, and in Matthew 15, 24, which is the parallel passage in Matthew for this scene, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so Jesus came to rescue the lost sheep of Israel. That's what he came for. But his atoning sacrifice would go beyond that. But Jesus didn't take that message to them. Right? Jesus was raising up in the apostles and the disciples people who would carry on that mission. But Jesus had no intention to go to like Rome, like Paul was trying to do, to preach the gospel. He was going to send his messengers to do that work. And we can see here that Jesus also says in verse 26, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 27 let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Um, he doesn't say, let only the children be fed. He says, let the children be fed first. Okay? So uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 116, maybe you're familiar with this verse, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation or the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Okay? Or then also to the Greek. So Jesus is not excluding the benefit of his ministry going to this woman, just not before the benefit of his ministry has met the needs of the Jewish people. Okay? And then third, if Jesus were really a racist, then how would this scene have ended? How does it end? Verse 30. He wouldn't have healed the dog. Yeah, right? The, the, it, it ends with him doing exactly what she asked him to do. And if he was really a racist, he never would have done that, right? He would have been like, get away from me, you pig, and he would have left. So, uh, I mean, you can, the re, I guess the reason I bring this up is because need, we need to be very discerning when we're listening to supposed experts, pastors, teachers, and, uh, and we need to take what they say, even what I say, with a grain of salt and measure it against what the Bible actually says and teaches. Um, but this woman, far from Jesus ins being uh, uh, insulting to her, she comes to be a, a beautiful picture of faith. She, as a Gentile, a non-Jew, shows 
an exemplary faith that Jesus struggles to even find among the Jews. So, and then she gets to be honored in scripture for thousands of years. Um, so, yeah. And Jesus is ultimately showing here that his power over darkness, his power over evil, is going to extend even to the Gentiles. It is not exclusive to the Jews only. Um, now, consider the effect of even the crumbs of God's power. How many of you, if I said you can have a cookie or you can have cookie crumbs, what would you pick? You'd pick the cookie, right? And, uh, and I don't blame you. I would too. But these, Jesus calls this miracle essentially crumbs, right? Or I guess that's what the woman says. If I could only have some crumbs, then my need would be met. And uh, I just want to point out how powerful the crumbs of God are. With only a word, Jesus accomplishes more than any person could ever dream or imagine. Right? With just a word, he says, woman, your faith will do what you say. Right? For this statement, verse 29, for this statement, go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she goes home and finds that her daughter has been set free from this evil power. And the demons are overcome and cast out with nothing more than just a passing comment from Jesus. I think maybe we have mentioned this before, but one of my favorite scenes in the Bible is Revelation 19. And it gives us this really awesome picture of Jesus. I think a lot of people think of Jesus as like a sissy boy, you know, because he's compassionate and kind. And he kind of just like floats around like being nice to people doing little magic tricks. But read Revelation 19. And we see Jesus, this rider, sitting on a white horse. He's like tattooed up and uh, he's clearly strong and he's carrying a sword. Actually, it says that in his mouth is a sword. And at the end of that chapter, he slays all of the enemies of earth that stand against him just with a word. So that's the kind of power that his word has. Any other comments or questions on this section? Are we sure that he was referring to the woman as a dog and not just using it as a, like an illustration? Yeah, that's, uh, that's another good point. Are we sure that he was referring to the woman as a dog and not just using it as an illustration? I mean, I think he was using it as an illustration. But he is saying the place of non-Jews at this point in God's salvation plan is lower, right? It's secondary. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think she was meant to infer from that some insult that she's some kind of dog or beast. Yeah, good question. Okay, and I said something there that maybe I should tease out for a second. I said at this point in God's plan, the Gentiles were secondary. That's important to understand. God's salvation plan unfolds in what we might call progressive revelation. Okay? The revelation of his plan of salvation progresses through scripture. So, you know, if we were to go back just to Genesis, we would see God's intention for Abraham. And it's pretty localized to Abraham at the exclusion of all the other people around him. Right? But we get these hints that God is intending something more because he says to Abraham that you will be blessed to be a blessing. And your children will, you know, be greater than the number of stars in the sky. But we don't understand what that means until we start to see the story unfold more. 
right? So as Jesus is speaking to this woman at this point in his plan of salvation, what we understand is only that Jesus has, came, has come to fulfill the role of Messiah. But we're going to see that that, that that blessing, that benefit will go also to the Gentiles. Okay. Okay, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is kind of coming down the coast and then east. Actually, I should look at that. I think Tyre is above Sidon. No, it's the other way around. It says he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon. So I guess he's going up through Sidon and then he's going to come back down to the Sea of Galilee. But it says in the region of the Decapolis, verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, Ephetha, that's a tough one, Ephetha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Does anybody know what the word decapolis, decapolis means? Does anyone know what the word deca means? A decathlon, what? Ten. Ten, right? So deca means ten. Polis, does anybody know what the word polis means? Political, police even, polis. It actually means city. So this is the Greek, this is a Greek word that means 10 cities. So the Decapolis is a region of 10 cities. It encompasses the southeast area of the Sea of Galilee. And all, all but one of these cities was east of the Jordan. So there was one city that was west of the Jordan. So does anybody know what's east of the Jordan River? In this region, in the northeast, area that we're talking about it's predominantly gentiles okay so jesus is continuing his ministry among gentiles again we can assume there were lots of jews in these areas but for the most part these were like gentile cities uh you probably don't care about the names but canatha damascus dion gadara gerasa hippos pella philadelphia rafana and Scythopolis. And these were actually cities that in like 60 BC were like conquered by Rome and basically became Roman. So, okay. You know what's kind of interesting at this point? Jesus has been all over the place. Does anybody know where he hasn't been or at least where Mark has not recorded him being? Jerusalem. Now we know that Jesus has been to Jerusalem before because the other gospels record him going there as a kid. But... Um, Jesus, in Mark's gospel, has not yet been to Jerusalem. So the, the literary layout of this book, as far as Mark is concerned, is he's building, uh, he's building anticipation. As Jesus is ministering in this area, doing these miracles, proving himself to be the Son of God, 
And yet, the Messiah for the Jews is, is going to be like David in Jerusalem. And yet, Jesus hasn't begun going that way yet. But Mark's going to get there. And, and once, once that begins to happen, the rest of the action unfolds very quickly around Jerusalem and the crucifixion. So, uh, but, but what would, if Jesus is a Jewish teacher and he is spending a lot of his time in the countryside and even among Gentiles, what do you think that would do to the Jewish religious leaders? Anybody? I'll give you an example. Let's say you've got a local politician who's supposed to work for you, and they spend all their time in Washington, D.C. How do you feel? Yeah, right? Upset, neglected. Like, this person is supposed to be about me, right? And so you have Jesus, who's like this unauthorized Jewish teacher. Unauthorized meaning he doesn't have the permission of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He's just doing his thing. And, uh, and then he has the audacity not to go to the place where all the Jewish education is centralized. The Jewish cult worship is located. And he's out in the countryside and even among Gentiles. Right? So there's probably many reasons why Jesus ended up crucified by the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders. But this is probably a part of it. Is he totally... I mean, not totally, but for the most part, he wouldn't associate himself with the things that they thought he should associate himself. Okay, there's some very interesting and unique aspects to this healing. Jesus heals a lots, heals lots of people, but this one is kind of interesting. We just saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed girl with a single word without even seeing her, right? Not even being in the same location as her. He just heals her with a word. Now he's going to heal a deaf and mute man, a man who cannot hear or really speak. And he's going to do so by really kind of getting his hands dirty in the process. And only Mark includes the particular details of this healing. Maybe a, a reason why we see this kind of variety. So Jesus heals people in lots of different ways. Why, why do you think the variety might be an important part of his healing process. I think it would be to illustrate that he has more than, well, to say, like, more than one trick, more than, more than one miracle that he could perform. Like he wants to show people that he can do all things. Yes, I think you're exactly right, Zach, that he, he wants to show people that he can do all things, that he has more than one trick, right? If we saw him do these things and he was like, every time, just roll with me on this for a second, it's going to be silly, but he's like, I need a stick and I need some camel hair, right? And then he got the stick and he waved it and he got the camel hair and he waved it. What would people begin to think? That he's a magician or that they also can maybe replicate what he's doing using the same tools. Yeah, right? That the power is in the tools, right? That there's something about the stick and the camel hair that is accomplishing this. And Jesus is not pinned down. You know, he, he does it different ways. And I think at least part of the reason is probably so that people will see the power is in this man. It is the power of God present in him, right? 
So sometimes he uses a word. Other times he lays his hands on them. Sometimes he tells them they need to go to the temple and offer worship. Sometimes uh, he speaks to them. Other times he forgives them of their sins, right? I mean, there's lots of different ways that he, he does this. Um, and I think that that's kind of powerful. Um, and I think there's probably something for us to learn in this as like Christians, right? That um, the power that we need, the power that we pursue is in God himself. It's not in our church programs. It's not in our educational resources. It's not in what version of the Bible we read. It's not in the particular teachers or people that we might follow. It's not in the methods or the strategies that we have. Those things may be important, but like I'm about to go to Kenya. There are pastors in Kenya that I'm gonna be working with. They don't even know how to read. And yet, in some ways it doesn't matter, right? Like we would love for them to learn how to read the Bible and I'm sure they would too. But the power of God is what they need, not necessarily the ability to read. Um, and even though we have the power of God because we have the Holy Spirit, um, doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be healed from their like, sickness in the sense like, for example, if I have cancer and I pray and I have faith, yet, God may choose to heal me from that or he may not. And that doesn't mean that something is wrong with my faith. Yeah. Something is wrong with God. Absolutely. That's good. Yeah. We can ask God for those things, but if he chooses to not do what we ask, then we just have to trust him in that. And and that's what we're really being called to to do is trust God. Um, I'm actually going to talk about that quite a bit in my sermon at the end today. Um. Yeah, because he wants what's best for us, and he knows what's best for us. And it may be in healing, and it may not be in healing. And if we're going to be honest to the text of the Gospels, we see that Jesus actually doesn't heal lots of people. He probably doesn't heal more people than he heals. Um, So, even though he heals a lot of people. Okay, so let's look at the unique aspects of this particular healing. And again, I, I mean, I'll be honest and say I think it's kind of weird. He pulls this guy aside to privately interact with him. So although Matthew does not record this healing, none of the other Gospels do, Matthew does give us a little picture of Jesus in the Decapolis following this part of the story. And and Matthew says that Jesus healed many people. Okay, So he was doing lots of healings here. But for this guy, for some reason, Jesus decides to pull him aside privately. Um, We don't always see Jesus do that with healings. And Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears. I know, kind of weird, right? And then he spits and touches the man's tongue. It's not really clear whether he, like, spits on the ground or, like, spits on his finger. I'm prone to believe he probably spits on his finger. Um, I mean, you're talking about a world 2,000 years ago. They didn't know anything about germs. I mean, I'm sure they weren't, like, you know, passing saliva around. But still, they didn't understand the things that we... I mean, Jesus obviously did as God. But he's living in a culture where they don't understand bacteria and stuff like that. But he spits. That's weird. He touches the man's tongue. That's also weird. The only... Maybe... I mean, there are a couple of things that I can think about 
uh, with why Jesus goes through this kind of stuff. The first one is, oh, well, let me just finish. He also sighs. And then he, um, he looks into heaven, right? He looks up at verse 34. He looks into heaven and he sighs. Uh, this man cannot hear and he can't really speak, but what can he do? See. He can see, mm-hmm. right? So there's some almost like sign language, mm-hmm. right? Jesus is, is in a way communicating with this man, right? And touch your ears to show you that I will heal your ears. Touch your tongue. He, he sighs, which if you're... Even if you can't hear somebody sigh, you can see the motion, right? And then he looks into heaven, which the Jews believed God is in the heavens. So I think in some ways he is maybe communicating with this guy. But I, I will admit, I don't, I don't totally have a clue what these things mean. Um, other than, once again, Jesus is powerful to heal. Maybe they also connect to something Mark said earlier back in chapter 4, verse 12, which is, of the Jews, he said, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. You know, here's a man who has ears, but they don't function. He's got a tongue, but it can't do what it's supposed to do. And so maybe by like touching and interacting with the man, he's kind of recalling that like these things are supposed to function. But more importantly, what about the spiritual reality of seeing God and hearing his word? Those kinds of things. Um yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Anybody have any other ideas? Does anybody feel uncomfortable with admitting that there are some things in the Bible that you don't understand? Yeah. You do feel uncomfortable with that? Yeah, like I don't know. Someone touched my ears. But however, if that is going to Yeah, God is God and I'm not. Well, that yeah. It's also something that like it's it's weird, but we remember it. So maybe that was part of the point. Sure. So true. Just like the healings, he does different healings so that people see it. He does healing differently so we remember it. So yeah. That's know, good. Could be. Yeah. No, that really is probably true. A lot of these people, they weren't literate. They didn't have access to writing materials and things like that. So that's part of the reason I think why Jesus talks in parables and stories and illustrations. It helps them remember. So yeah, maybe the actions accomplish that. I want to say that I'm okay with not understanding everything in the Bible. I mean, I think it's good for us to seek to understand. But I actually don't want a God who I can totally figure out. Um, anybody in here like to play video games? Yeah, a couple of us. <laughs> After you beat a video game, what do you do with it? <laughs> For the most part, after you beat a video game, you don't play it anymore. Right? That's what we do with things that we conquer, we master, we, we achieve the end of. And so, I like a god who invites me to understand him but will also say to me what the bible says which is i am not a man like you my ways are not your ways my ways are higher than your ways right this is a god who for all eternity has existed forever and will exist forever and i kind of i don't know about you but i kind of like my god to be a little bit mysterious beyond my comprehension Right? So if there's some things in the Bible that I don't understand, um, I, I'm okay with that. 
Yeah. I wonder if it's the culture too that was back then, because now we're like, we don't communicate very much. I mean, we want to do short texts, we want to do, you know, things like that. But back then, maybe it was like people wanted to get together, and your entertainment was telling the story. So yeah. So you would have this, you know, hand motions and all this after this miracle of Jesus that you could communicate to other people. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. He was giving them some some almost like acting to go along with the story that they're telling. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that's cool. I like that. And you're right. We live in a culture where we don't communicate very well. You know, we use like emojis, <laughs> which I think are kind of just very different. This culture would have been very, very verbal, very oral, very people centered, not schedule centered, you know. So yeah, that's that's interesting. I like it. I think we need to be cautious and use this term and if we hear anybody to say something along the lines like, oh, like I, I understand and I know, like we're not God, right? And so to your earlier point, I don't think we will ever comprehend yeah. and fully like understand to the fullest of the fullest. Yeah. However, there, there are sometimes people that is a big like they have arrived or that they know it all and I'll be like how come yeah I mean as a pastor I don't often want to stand up in front of my church and be like I don't know I don't know how to answer that question um because I don't want to be like lazy if I, if it's possible then I want to understand but at the same time be cautious of a pastor who seems to know everything because what he probably lacks is humility <laughs> so there's, there's something okay about getting to a point where we have to just say of certain parts of scripture. I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, I can maybe kind of guess, but I wouldn't be certain about it. Um, I mean, that's how I feel about Revelation. I have a, a viewpoint, a way that I think uh, it makes sense to me, but I'm not so certain of it that I would say anybody who disagrees with me is wrong. There are parts of the Bible where I would say that, but I wouldn't say it about Revelation. And I'll make one other point here, which is um, Mark has explained some things to us. Remember back in uh, verse 11? Oh, wait. No, not 11. Yeah, uh, chapter 7, verse 3. Or let's even do chapter 7, verse 19. The, the ESV version, at least, that I read from it has a parenthesis there. And it gives commentary. It says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark is explaining to us something that Jesus did that we might not have understood without Mark explaining. So this is an important thing to understand. If the Bible does not explain something to us, then we should be careful about speculating. God's desire is for us to know and understand him. And he's given us his word to do that. And there are some places where we just, he doesn't give us any commentary and we just don't know. Um, I came across this really strange scene in Second Kings a couple of days ago in my own devotions, First Kings, about a prophet who... God gets very upset at because like another prophet tricks him and I was like I do not understand this 
at all. Um, and it would be unwise for me to go speculate about what this might mean. Does that make sense? Okay. And I think for the most part, we don't have a lot of those instances in the Bible, but there are some times where we just have to admit, not sure. Okay, Ephatha is Aramaic, and that's why Mark explains it to us. He gives us a translation, right? Um, Jesus, Jesus definitely spoke Aramaic. He probably also spoke Hebrew. He probably, it's quite possible he knew some Greek. And I mean, as God, he knows all languages. But uh, Mark's readers, what language did Mark write the Gospel of Mark in? Greek. I didn't hear what you said. What did you say? I was guessing Latin. Latin, okay. Greek, right? So... He wrote it in Greek, so his readers probably don't know what the word ephatha means. I can't even say it. Ephatha, uh, if I don't know, whatever. So the point is Mark translates it for us, right? Okay. Um, and then the more that Jesus attempts to keep his identity secret, he's like a masked superhero verse 36 he charges them to tell no one how do they respond right the more he's like shh the more they're running around telling people about Jesus uh, which is cool and we should have the same kind of zeal in proclaiming Christ shouldn't we I mean our culture tells us to shut up about talking about Jesus and I think that should just cause us to talk about him more. There's not a one-to-one -one equivalence there, okay? Jesus telling these people to not, to kind of keep it on the down low. is not the same thing as our culture saying, don't talk about God. But um, the point is, their zeal for telling this story is pretty cool. And it should be an inspiration to us, I think. I was thinking, how can you not, though? You know, like in this case, the guy is like... Deaf yeah. And, and mute, and now we can hear and talk. Like, how can you? Right, right. Not. Yes, yes. I mean, I have found this trend now that, like, when you see a funny video online, it's like you got to see this video, yeah. right? That that's what people must have been doing. Like, you got to hear this story about this guy, right? And yeah, he put his hands in his ears, and he, and it's like, how would you not want to share that story if you saw it happen? All right, and then it says they were astonished beyond measure, verse 37. That's an interesting phrase. I think Mark almost seems to be struggling to find the right words. Astonished beyond measure. If something is beyond measure, it's like it is immeasurable. It's, it's a size too big. That's the intensity with which they were amazed. This is probably about as emphatic as you could be. Greek does not have any punctuation. The original manuscripts of Greek doesn't have things like periods and commas. But we could imagine maybe at the end of this sentence, if it did, you would have like five or six exclamation points. And then they exclaim about Jesus, what? In verse 37, he has... 
done all things well. These people have a very perceptive response to the work of Jesus. Because do you remember back in chapter 3 of Mark, verse 22, when Jesus healed a man who was lame from birth, I believe he was lame from birth, what do the Pharisees say about his works? Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Oh, it's from casting out demons. What? Yeah, that he's possessed, right? He's doing these, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. So you've got the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who look at Jesus doing incredible miracles and they say, he has done this by the power of Satan. And then you have these non-Jewish people probably, in the area of the Decapolis, see Jesus heal a man with his hands, and they say, he has done all things well. The contrast is so stark. Yeah. I mean, which side of that do you want to be on? The side that looks at the power of Jesus doing good things and saying that's evil? Or the power that looks at Jesus and says that that is... That's, he does all things well. He is good. Someone tell me what time it is. 9.30. Well, maybe we'll... Maybe we'll stop there. It's a little early. Is that okay? I guess I could go a little further. We'll go a little further. Chapter 8. It says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And the, the parables of uh, feeding large crowds, I, I think about them all the time as I am uh, preparing to preach, as I'm praying about preaching. Right? Jesus, I have these meager scraps to offer. And so I pray that you'll multiply them and feed your people. But Jesus feeds uh, another massive crowd here. So the last, Mark, Mark records two of these events. The last one we saw, Jesus fed 5,000 men. So more than likely, wives were around, children were around. There's a good possibility it was 10, maybe 15,000 people, lots of people. 
Here he's going to feed. This time Mark is, is quite explicit and says that, uh, verse 9, there were about 4,000 people. So it is amazing the things that the human heart refuses to believe, isn't it? Even with ample evidence. So I think one of the reasons why Mark records this story twice is because he knows the human tendency to explain away things that are uh, amazing. So the skeptic might claim, no, 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 there's no way this man fed 5,000 people. You have your facts wrong. You know, you must have miscounted. There must have been more loaves and fish than that. Something was going on that explains this away. And so I think to really kind of destroy the argument of the skeptic, Jesus completes this same miracle again. And we can see right here from the text how difficult it is for people to believe because who was present with Jesus when he fed the 5,000? His disciples. And now, here they are in the middle of nowhere. They already saw Jesus do that miracle. And when Jesus says, I want to feed these people, what do the disciples say? <laughs> what? You can't do that. Like, what are you going to, how are you going to feed these people? What are you going to do? Like, don't you, don't you think that at least one of them should have been like, okay, Jesus, I mean, you did this once before. Like, tell us what we got to do to make it happen. But no, they're sort of like, this is ridiculous, Jesus. What are you doing? And, uh, I mean, these people were following Jesus, it says, for three days. You have to understand, probably most of these people were pretty poor. There's no McDonald's on the corner, right? I mean, they're kind of out in the Jewish wilderness. Um, they might not have even had much money to buy food, assuming food was available. I mean, they were quite committed to following Jesus, even to the point of going three days without anything to eat. Um, and so in response to that, Jesus feels compassion. I love it. Verse 2, he says, I have compassion on the crowd. And what I find so amazing about this is he has compassion on them for what reason? What do they lack that the text tells us they lack that he feels compassion for them? Just food, right? If God feels compassion for people who are hungry, how much more does he feel compassion for people who are spiritually starved? I mean, ultimately, Jesus wants these people to be saved out of their sin and their sorrow, to be redeemed. But he just has compassion on them for the simple fact that they don't have any bread. What time is it? 9.35. Okay, then I'm going to go down this road and then I'll move to close. Um, I think there could be a little connection here to... So in Matthew chapter uh, 6, I think it is, Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs what is holy. And I think what he means there is, like, if you've got a hungry pig... Should you give it pearls? No, why not? 
it's not going to satisfy the pig. Pigs are pretty crazy, actually. Did you know pigs will eat human flesh? Like, pigs will eat anything. So if you go into a pig pen with a bunch of hungry pigs and you try and give them pearls, what are they going to eat? You. you right? <laughs> so I think there's some connection here because what Jesus ultimately wants these people to hear the good news of God's grace, the teaching of the kingdom. But he pauses to feed them. And I think the reason is because... Um, <clears throat> Jesus understands that we need to give to people what corresponds with their need. In other words, we need to we need to sort of meet people at their basic needs before we try and offer to them things that are 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 higher. Um so let me maybe give an example. And and you know, we've got kids in the room how easy is school to do when you're hungry? I think it's hard, right? Like if your stomach is growling and your teacher's trying to teach you like trigonometry, you're like, forget that. I'm thinking about cheeseburgers. Okay. I think Jesus understands this. And so maybe a way that this kind of applies is if you are dealing with a um, person who is crushed by a guilty conscience, Maybe they have something in the past that they did that's just a burden on their soul. And they're not a Christian. And you try to give them Jesus by teaching them about the Trinity. Right? That's not helpful. That's, I think, feeding pearls to swine. And this seems really obvious. And it is obvious. But you'd be surprised. I mean, all you have to do is go to like an online forum where people are discussing things and you can see the stupid responses that Christians put. That's like, you totally missed the point, man. And it's not helpful. And it's no wonder now that the person that you responded to is going to devour you like a hungry pig in their response because you didn't do what was needful. Does that make sense? And so I think we just need to be discerning about where people are at. I think Jesus does a good job with this. He has compassion on them and he offers them food. That's going to give him the opportunity to offer them the gospel later. And James says something kind of similar to this in James chapter 2. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Right? You can say to somebody who's in need, Go in peace. Because God is with you, right? He cares about you. To a Christian, you can say, you know, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But if you've also got a blanket, you know, if you've, if you've also got a hot meal, then that establishes this truth that God is caring for them. Does that make sense? Okay. Hopefully that makes sense. The point is, as Christians, we should be discerning about where people are at. So that we can meet them in that place to ultimately take them to Christ. Any questions on that? Comments? Okay, verse 4. Let's just uh, extrapolate this out into the spiritual realm. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make this connection. Verse 4. The disciples answer Jesus. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Jesus is the bread that satisfies the soul in the desolate place. 
right? I mean, in this world, Jesus says, you'll have trouble because this world is a desolate place. But Jesus is the bread that satisfies the soul. Um, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is kind to feed them actual bread, but ultimately he wants to eat, invite them to, to eat from the bread that will lead to everlasting life. And... Um, yeah, Jesus is powerful to provide. Um, you know, these crowds are in this isolated, desolate place, and they're hungry. And when they come to the end of themselves, right, they, at least in this little scene, they don't have power to feed themselves. They don't have the option to feed themselves. They come to the end of themselves. And what do they find? They find that God is there in that desolate place to provide for them. It makes me think of what Paul says. That I prayed for this thorn in my side to be removed and God replied and said to me, My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Right? We, we sort of feel discouraged or we feel despair when we kind of come to the end of ourself. But in reality, that's where God says, I've been waiting for you to like surrender. And now let me show you the way that I can take care of this problem for you. So in some ways, as Christians, we should seek to live in a desolate place so that, our, so that we learn to get our provision from God alone. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for Jesus and his compassion. We thank you for his power to heal and redeem. We thank you for the provision of his body as a... Uh, eternal life food divine food that leads to our salvation that satisfies our soul we thank you that christ is the bread of life and i pray that we would eat uh just greedily from the provision of his life from from your word from the grace that comes to us through christ i pray that we would be eager to be satisfied in him and i pray that in him we would find satisfaction in christ's name Amen.